This is Fundraising Radio, and today's a guest speaker of Maria Grineva, co-founder and CEO of Orb Intelligence. I was recently acquired by Don and Bradstreet. In this episode, we'll talk about raising first money from U.S. investors while living in Europe, and of course, about getting acquired and what happens after this acquisition actually happens. You know, so Maria, let's kick it off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Orb Intelligence. Sure, uh, Constantin, thank you so much for inviting me to share uh, my path with Orb. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to, to share how we did it and maybe it's useful for other entrepreneurs who want to start the company. So about myself, um, I have an engineering background. I um, studied in Moscow and I did my PhD, master's and PhD in computer science in Moscow State University. And um, I spent... Um, several years in academia while in PhD, doing PhD and later after that. And um, I always felt uh, with my friends and colleagues that we want uh, a startup. And um, we actually had a very small project called uh, Twitter Times that um, we launched ourselves, uh, being uh, still in Moscow and working in Moscow. And uh, we raised a little bit of angel money for that project uh, from one of the users of Twitter Times. It was a um, web-based pers- news personalization service. And um, after two years, uh, we managed to not to figure out <laughs> how to make money. <laughs> it was a free service, was premium model, and it was very hard to make money on news, and especially when you're small, still small uh, news platform. And uh, we got an offer to, to be acquired from Yandex and because Yandex always wanted similar service, similar product, and also uh, a team of engineers and scientists. So we agreed to that. And uh, with this Yandex acquisition, uh, we moved to California because Yandex has an office in Palo Alto called Yandex Labs. So after after that, um, I worked for Yandex for two years and uh, then left to build uh, a new startup. Uh, and that's about uh, my company called Orb Intelligence. It was about six and a half years ago when we started Orb. And um, so Orb Intelligence um, uh, is a B2B data provider. So we collected uh, information on companies cleansed it, integrated, um, did all kinds of um, AI to figure out missing values, uh, missing information. And um, we sold that data to other vendors uh, who built all kinds of applications uh, for B2B sales and marketing. Um, For example, um, LinkedIn, um, Lattice Engines, SimilarWeb, also, large companies like um, uh, Facebook, Oracle, SAP, they were our clients. Um, yeah, so that's uh, that's about myself and Orb, in short. Perfect description. And before we actually move on to Orb Intelligence and discussing like how you grew it so much, I wanted to touch on uh, Twitter times. How did you get acquired if it was freemium model, so you were not generating any traction whatsoever? Uh, through Twitter times, but you still got acquired by Yandex. How, how did this happen? Uh, 
Yes, um, so we knew people at Yandex for a long time <clears throat> and uh, we had a lot of communication on different uh, technical um, subjects around text analytics and uh, mining text and social media with um, Yandex um, co-founder and CTO Ilya Sigalovich, who unfortunately passed away several years ago. And uh, at some point, um, Ilya just um, had this idea that um, it would be great to work together. So basically, it was like a, a team acquisition, uh, team and product acquisition. So it was not about business. It was not about the market share. It was about uh, the product the product that he liked a lot, this um, news personalization product, and our team. So that was uh, a simple case. Simple that case. sounds like a not really simple case because it required, you know, years of communicating with these people. So it had prior relationship built, but, you know, you still yeah. have yeah. to build in that relationship. So just not to make everyone uh, fall into belief that, you know, it's easy to get acquired. Uh, so let's, let's now talk about Worm Intelligence. When did you start raising money for that company? Sure. So, yes, uh, after Twitter times, uh, me and my co-founder, we realized that we really, uh, probably our next uh, startup should be B2B because uh, Twitter times was a um, consumer product and it was very hard to figure out monetization and business model when you have a lot of users uh, who just used to get news and all kinds of services online for free or for a very, very small uh, price. So um, we've understood that we probably, it would be easier to um, start a company, at least in the beginning, it is much easier when it is B2B because uh, it seems uh, to be more predictable. So when you have uh, just one or two uh, clients um you already have a contract with them and it's usually annual or multi-year uh, contract. And um, so in our case, it was about 30, 40 K per year subscription model. And mm -hmm. so you get one or two clients and it's already, they already uh, bring you some revenue on, on with this revenue you can uh, survive. So in the beginning, we, it was just two of us, uh, two co-founders, both technical. We were working from home. And we, um, um, I, I actually have a friend, uh, Kira Radinsky. She had um, a startup in this space called uh, Sales Predict. And she explained to me the need, this very small uh, niche uh, kind of market for this kind of data that later we expanded, but in the beginning it was a very niche uh, idea, uh, she said. So we really need this kind of data source for company data. And uh, there is only this very old-fashioned uh, data provider called Dun & Bradstreet. And startups just don't buy from Dun & Bradstreet. It's a different um, level of pricing, uh, different le different communication. They just can't uh, work with uh, such old-fashioned company like Dun & Bradstreet and rely on their product. So uh, we understood that and we also did a lot of, a little bit of research and spoke to other uh, founders in similar space, in the same space with similar uh, products. 
and um, we got um, uh, like a verbal confirmation from two companies that they would buy our product if we build it. At the same time, in parallel, we were trying to raise the money for our startup, and we spoke. Uh, with, uh, we understood it's impossible to raise. Uh, any money from real funds, VC funds, so we only spoke to uh, angels. We actually spoke also to VC firms, but um, uh, this is actually a, a life hack. It, VC are very useful for introductions. Even if um, you're not going to raise money, it's always uh, useful to uh, have a meeting with a VC uh, because uh, that's their job. They connect people. They all of them like good VC have a good network. First of all, they have their own uh, portfolio companies, and they often can recommend uh, your service or uh, have like uh, advice from one of the portfolio companies, or get you can get a validation from one of them, or they can introduce you to other. Uh, VCs or also founders. So talking to VC um, makes sense even if you're not raising money just for networking, uh, at least in Silicon Valley. Uh, but we were thinking about angel investors and we only um, managed to raise very little money from angels, about uh, 175K. And uh, one of our angel investors uh, was a person who previously invent, um, invested in Twitter Times. So we knew each other and he was happy with the outcome he got from Twitter Times. And um, three other angel investors who invested very small amounts um, to basically to B2B uh, software uh, startups. Uh, and at the same time, we realized that uh, we're probably going to have two clients soon. And we decided to focus on acquiring clients to bootstrap and to grow on our, on our own revenue. So that was our fundraising uh, story. Got it. I wanted to follow up. First of all, that's a pretty good life hack in terms of talking to VCs because some VCs, if they like the product, they really can you know, go out of their way, give you good introductions, maybe recommend you to their own portfolio companies, the portfolio companies of their friends, etc. But you have to you know, build this relationship as well. So first of all, I'm actually curious, uh, before we move on to talking about how you build that initial revenue, I'm curious, how do you get in touch with those VCs? So you said that you still had meetings with VCs even though you were not really raising from them, you were focusing on angels. How did you manage to get those means? So did you already have any connections to VCs or did you just you know, text them on LinkedIn or you know, through email or through their website? How did this process work? So um, a lot of networking. So we had some connections while we were working at Yandex and um, we had um, one person from... Um, VC firm reached out to us when we were working on a particular product on product for Yandex because they believed that uh, building search um, for mobile um, for kind of for mobile applications was a good idea. So we started just meeting to have some brainstorming sessions with that person, and then he introduced us to many more. 
it's just a lot of networking. I also met um, people at some events in Silicon Valley. I used to go to a lot of of these events then. No, I don't do anymore. Um, it's just, uh, I don't know, just a lot of networking and then you get connection. It's. I think I feel it's easy to get connected to this firm. I would not call it easy necessarily, but if you put effort, it's it's kind of easy, right? But mm -hmm. because they are also looking out. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's their job to source good deals, so yeah. they are actively looking pretty much always. Mm -hmm. Not now, though. Uh, most of the VCs are really focused in their portfolio companies now and do not do as much of uh, sourcing as they used to. But good times are coming soon, so we'll all we'll be staying positive here. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's about your recommendation, those events. So you said you attended uh, many networking events. I'm not a person, personally, I'm not a big fan of such events because I think that if people have good networks, so these, these are the people who you want to connect to, they will they just won't go to those networking events because their network is big enough already. So do you think those networking events really helped you? Sometimes. No, there are so many, especially recently in Silicon Valley. Back then, when uh, it was maybe eight years ago, there, there was a lot too. Um, I don't know. I feel... I was new to Silicon Valley and I felt that everything is useful, you know? <laughs> That that does make sense. So here, let's move on to talking about generating that revenue. You know, uh, you said that in the beginning it was just you two co-founders, and I assume that you both were technical, right? Yes. So how did you manage to acquire those first customers? So first two customers, I remember that story. Those were your connections. But then, how did you move on? From that point, did you actually hire a salesman who is professional in that field, or did you do it yourself? Yeah, that's a very good question. So um, for us, uh, the following thing worked. We connected, we reached out uh, on LinkedIn or by email to other founders. And uh, so founders of, uh, so in our case, we were lucky because um, with B2B, we were selling to other companies and to other, mostly to other technical companies. So in our case, we um, uh, reached out to uh, founders of large startups about Series C, Series D startups. Uh, and uh, before that, we did a lot of research to understand how our data would fit in the product or business. Uh, so we'll, we watched uh, demos on YouTube. Sometimes we spoke to the sales representatives to understand their product better. And so when we reached out to uh, decision makers, in, in this case, they're usually founders or maybe head of product, uh, technical head of product. And uh, we explained them very, very specifically how our data would fit in uh, in their product and maybe uh, would help to build additional feature or to help to, to solve some problems that we believe they would have. Uh, so founders are very responsive uh, on cold calls because they, they were in these situations before and they still understand, they appreciate it and they have a feeling of who is who much better than uh, enterprise, enterprise people who get a lot of uh, inquiries uh, usually. Uh, 
And later, uh, you, you're absolutely right, it is very difficult to sell uh, to enterprises. Uh, in the United States, you need to have a professional uh, account managers, professional sales team. And uh, later we hired um, two um, account uh, enterprise sales uh, people. Um, basically, they found us themselves. That's how it happens. On one of the events we were speaking, and this person said, probably I can sell what you built. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. And what were you, the terms? Did you actually hire him right away as a full-time employee or did you start working with him as a contractor? That's a very good question. So the key here, especially when you bootstrap, is um, to only hire them on commission, on commission from the revenue that they bring. Because... Um, there are a lot of people out there who would love to have to get just a salary, even for like a quarter or half a year. They don't care. Then they would go out and find another startup who will pay them salary. Uh, I mean, salespeople. And so we agreed that they would get pretty high commission, about uh, 20, 25% uh, from the deal that they would bring. And absolutely in zero base salary. So yeah, that was the deal for us. It's it's very hard to find salespeople who are willing to do that. But when you bootstrap, that's uh, essential. You were actually paying him commission only, so there was no base salary whatsoever. Yes, exactly. So we agreed uh, on commission on the um, and no base salary. So it's very hard to find uh, good salespeople who would agree to do that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, we were very lucky with Gary, and uh, he was quite entrepreneurial himself. So he was working with Orb. He was also uh, he had uh, a very small data, similar data business himself, and uh, so he didn't want to be a full time employee with all of that. He wanted to have flexibility, and we compensated it with pretty high. Uh, higher than average commission uh, for him. Um, and he brought us uh, some very good deals later. That That's actually great. That's a great story because in my personal experience and in experiences of other people that I've heard of, uh, it's extremely, extremely, extremely hard to find someone who's going to work on the commission base. So if you're listening to this, if your product is not super extra wonderful, probably you shouldn't actual waste time on that, try to pay them at least, you know, minimum wage or uh, something like that. Just make sure that they feel secure. So let's move on to deciding to scale, uh, to sell instead of scaling. So at one point, when, when did you decide that, you know, it's, it's time to sell? Did you just get uh, an offer from uh, Dun & Bradstreet or do you, do you intentionally start uh, looking for buyers? Yeah, uh, so we were growing uh, over all these years, for five years or so, and because our customers um, used our service, uh, they incorporated it, integrated it into their own products, uh, it was natural for um, some of them uh, to start thinking about some kind of a merger or an acquisition of Orb because uh, it just made 
for some of them, it, it totally made sense to have uh, this data source, to own this data source instead of licensing it. So, um, yeah, that's why general advice, if you're, um, it, it's good to think about an uh, exit strategy and acquisition exit strategy very early. And if you're growing like crazy, if your company is growing like crazy, that can be IPR or some kind of uh, PE deal, private equity deal, or um, uh, other uh, possible uh, ways of exit is obviously uh, acquisition by another company. And uh, it's good to understand why uh, those other, this other company should be, will be interested to acquire you. In our case, uh, our customers uh, relied uh, heavily on our data. So uh, it was a, a lot of risk uh, for them um, to to let it go or to uh, start looking for another data source in case uh, we die or get got acquired uh, will get acquired by someone. So um, time after time, I got this request. I was receiving this request from our customers to um, with the question, "What do you think about um, merging?" And um, I didn't want to sell for a long time because I was curious to see where it goes and it was growing and uh, my team was happy. Uh, and oh. so, um, but at, at some point uh, I realized that it's already five years in and um, this the space of um, the data industry uh, is actually very uh, fast changing. Uh, industry. Uh -huh. uh, I remember uh, we participated in Forrester uh, Wave research on B2B data providers and uh, just a year later I was looking at this report and it was uh, about 12 companies similar to ours but different size and almost all of them uh, changed. Uh, big companies acquired small companies, two medium-sized companies went out of business and I just thought, uh, yeah, we need to decide something. We can't stay this small in this turbulent uh, industry. Uh, it's probably a good idea to sell when everything uh, is good and uh, the business uh, is going well. The team is happy and motivated. It's a good time uh, to sell. So um, I reached out to all inter interested um, companies. It was about seven who uh, somehow expressed uh, an interest. Oh. And uh, I got two um, acquisition offers. And after that, I uh, spoke to Dun & Bradstreet. Uh, I was introduced to Dun & Bradstreet because um, a client uh, of us uh, realized that we are going to sell very soon. And I was lucky because GNB, uh, it was exactly their strategy. They recently changed uh, senior management because uh, they went private and uh, they were acquiring um, companies in this space. So it was totally a good fit for them. And they beat their previous two offers and I agreed uh, to sell to Dun & Bradstreet. That's great. And you were, I think, perfectly perfectly right on the timing. I think you sold like only a few months before the pandemic hit, right? Oh yeah, and it's looking back, uh, it, it's like a miracle. So the due diligence was pretty long and uh, tiring, 
So we were about in about like four months of due diligence and we signed the deal uh, early in January. And then just a month uh, after that, pandemic started. And uh, as you can imagine, now this kind of de decisions are postponed and hiring freeze and acquisitions are not uh, going on as easy as before. Mm -hmm. Got it, got it. Yeah, that's pretty lucky. But also, you know, luck is coming to people who bring it. So great work there, great work, perfect timing. I'm happy that that happened, you know. So let's talk about, uh, so here I wanted to touch on to, you know, the, the thing that I mentioned in the introduction to this episode, which is, what happens after the acquisition? So what happened to you personally after you got acquired by uh, Dunn & Bradstreet? Yeah, sure. So uh, it depends on the agreement and uh, founders are free to um, to get their own deals and uh, with the acquisition. So in our case, uh, it is pretty standard. Uh, all of my team, we were, uh, we are now working for, uh, the buying company for Dun and Bradstreet. And, uh, we help with the integration of our, uh, clients and, uh, products into DMB. So we integrate a technology level. We figure out how we join the products and, uh, we transition mm -hmm. our clients to DMB. And, um, yeah, so we are going to do this for the next couple of years. Oh, that's 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 a pretty long period of time. Is that like a real uh, legally bonding obligation that you have to comply with, or is it you know, something that you personally want to do? You want to make sure that the merger goes you know, smoothly and nicely. That's why you want to work there for so long, or is it legally bonding? Yeah, both, both. Of course, uh, there are. Um, this is the part of the deal that um, the team joins uh, DNB. It's not, um, I mean, everyone from the team is compensated differently, like founders from employees. Um, but yes, I, uh, I'm pretty excited about uh, the changes that DNB is going through now because this is a large uh, old fashioned American uh, corporation that uh, recently has a change. Um, uh, in senior management, it was bought by a PE firm, by several, three PE firms, and uh, they took it private and restructuring. So the goal is to make it, um, to add digital data uh, about companies um, in addition to what they had before, like all physical locations and so on. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I have a pretty interesting position in this uh, fast-changing and huge uh, corporation. That's a new experience for me and for my team. And um, I'm, I'm happy to do it for some time and see where, where it goes. It's it's very new for me and a lot of learning. Guys, guys, that's Sounds pretty interesting. So, quick question. I'm curious, what's, what's your position there right now? Uh, my position now is VP of engineering and I lead nice. digital, digital identity space for Dun and mm -hmm. Got it. That's, that's a really interesting position. You're right. You're absolutely right. So, last question before we'll wrap it up. Uh, I, actually, two last questions. Sorry. <laughs> two last no questions. Problem. So, first one is, uh, you know, a lot of founders, when they exit their companies, when they either sell it or you know, merge with another company successfully, they often try to 
and give back to the community. They try to help other founders who are struggling with their companies right now or who need some help with that. Uh, do you do any advisory roles or do you do any angel investments in uh, early stage startups? Yes, um, um, uh, I am thinking about it. Yes, before I never had time to think uh, or work on any other project than my own. But now, yes, I'm curious to look around, especially in the data space. So um, if someone is, wor is um, working on some interesting project related to data on um selling data or kind of discovering new sources of data and uh, so on. Uh, I'm happy to chat and maybe participate as a small angel investor or an advisor. Sounds interesting. If I find someone in data field, I will let you know. But right. here we're moving on to the last, last question of this episode. And it's a small call to action that I like to do with all my speakers. So what's that one thing that you want the listener to do as soon as this episode is over? So once this episode is finished, what's that one thing that you want the listener to do? Well, if I had to choose just one thing, um, I would suggest um, early uh, founders or uh, aspiring founders to um, first to do a lot of research yourself, even when you have a, uh, still have a day job, just uh, do a lot of reading and uh, reach out to people just to understand the industry better, to validate your idea. Uh, I believe that in Silicon Valley, uh, people are very responsive and uh, you can have a lot of in a good conversation with other founders, with VCs who will help you understand this, uh, the industry and validate your idea before you um, mm -hmm. go out and uh, spend uh, your time and money. That's, that's actually great advice. I've heard that a lot, especially from technical people. They recommend reading you know, articles of other technical people and actually reaching out to those people who write them because they are really happy to talk because, you know, they're pride, proud that someone actually read their article. So uh, try to do that if you are looking for technical people or if you're a technical person yourself. Uh, so also, Maria, earlier on, you mentioned something about the blog. Uh, I forgot what that about, but can you can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure, sure. So um, I really like um, a series of interviews by Sramana Mitra. She interviewed a lot of founders uh, about how they bootstrapped their companies, which grew uh, from 1 million to 100 million in revenue. It's mostly SaaS, uh, software as a service uh, uh, technology companies. So it's very relevant uh, to what I was doing. And it's just a very good series of interviews. Uh, I believe it's called um, uh, from one... one uh, what is I think I think it's called million by million. Uh -huh, yes, yes. Yeah, one million by one million. That's what it's called. Yeah. I if will... you search uh, Sramana Mitra interviews, uh, you will find a lot of content, and it's a lot of good advice, uh, real life stories about bootstrapping, uh, and just step by step how it happened for other people. Perfect. As a good host, I will publish the link to that uh, to that uh, blog. And if in the description of this episode, so if you want to read it, just don't Google it, 
take a look at the description of this episode and there is going to be a link. So we'll wrap it up here. Thanks a lot, Maria, for coming up and for sharing your insights. I think the Orb Intelligence story is really interesting how you, especially I'm probably even more curious about Twitter times because gain acquired generating no revenue as a really interesting aspect for me as a financial person. So thanks a lot for sharing that. Thanks for sharing your experience and for sharing the 1 million by 1 million blog. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely take a look at that as well. So thanks Thank and you. stay safe out there.